0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Peculiar Respect for the Poor of the World, Imitating God, Nourishing Our Own Souls. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 26, 2010. My morning routine unfolded as usual. I rose at about 5.30, had my cup of coffee, ran, showered, and then headed straight to Starbucks, where I ordered a grande triple shot latte for $4. According to the World Bank, about half the people in the world today live on $2 a day or less. These people could live for two full days on my daily caffeine addiction. And more than a billion people live on about a dollar a day. This half of the world suffers horribly from the catastrophic consequences of poverty as measured by a broad array of similar indices. Access to safe and dependable water, life expectancy, infant and maternal mortality, literacy, and so on. The psalmist for this week reminds us of the inescapable connection between loving God and caring for the poor. There are many reasons to care for the poor and the vulnerable, but our ultimate motivation is based in the character of God himself. In three short verses, Psalm 146, 7-9, reveals the tenderness of God for people in trouble. Notice the eight different groups of people mentioned by the psalmist. He upholds the cause of the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, sets prisoners free, gives sight to the blind, lifts up those who are bowed down, the Lord loves the righteous, He watches over the alien. He sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the way of the wicked. About 40 years ago, theologians and pastors who ministered in the poorest half of the world coined a term to describe this essential aspect of God's character. God, these theologians insisted, is actually biased, even prejudiced. Far from being neutral or impartial, they argued that God has what they called a preferential option for the poor. God plays favorites, you might say, by bestowing special favor on the dispossessed, and he asks us to do the same. This wasn't a new idea. It's a prominent theme throughout Scripture, of course, to take just one example. When Paul sought the official approval of the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, in Galatians 2.10, he says that, the only thing they asked us to do was to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Early theologians like Tertullian emphasized the centrality of caring for the poor. He said that God had what he called a, quote-unquote, peculiar respect, for the poor, and that caring for the poor was our quote-unquote distinctive sign by which believers were known. Knowing God means caring for the people close to his heart. When we align ourselves with his cares, we imitate his character. Wealth isn't intrinsically evil, of course, but Scripture does describe it as dangerous. And so, in helping the poor, we acknowledge that riches can impede and hinder our own salvation. We admit that we're susceptible to its allure. The reading this week from 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-19, describes the realm of riches as fraught with arrogance, traps, temptation, harmful and foolish desires, ruin, destruction, grief, and wandering from the faith. And in the Old Testament, last week's reading from Amos indicted the rich for exploiting the poor. In the reading for this week, Amos warns of the seductive power of wealth to make us complacent. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation, to whom the people of Israel come. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Amos laments the insidious power of luxury to seduce us feed our narcissistic tendencies, and insulate us from the plight of the poor that breaks the heart of God. The early theologian Clement of Alexandria wrote one of the first systematic treatments on faith and wealth. It's called, Who is the Rich Man That Shall Be Saved? Based on the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, believe that money was evil, but he nevertheless compared wealth to the danger of handling a poisonous snake. And here I quote, which will twist round the hand and bite, unless one knows how to lay hold of it without danger by the point of the tail. And riches wriggling either in an inexperienced or experienced grass are dexterous at adhering and biting. Unless one despising them use them skillfully, so as to crush the creature by the charm of the Word of God, and himself escape unscathed. For those who have more than they need, the early church fathers distinguished between the necessary and the superfluous, and they urged believers to share liberally with the poor. From those things that God gave you, wrote St. Augustine, take that which you need, but the rest, which to you are superfluous, are necessary to others. The superfluous goods of the rich are necessary to the poor. And when you possess the superfluous, you possess what is not yours. Stated positively, Paul advises us to cultivate contentment. And his definition of contentment is shocking by American standards. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 1 Timothy 6.8 By con- cultivating contentment with necessities and rejecting conspicuous consumption, we also acknowledge that we're merely stewards and not owners of all that God has entrusted to us. The Gospel for this week from Luke 16 records the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man dressed in the finest clothes, ate the best food, and actively ignored the poor man at his gate. Lazarus was famished, wore rags, was covered with lesions, and surrounded by dogs who licked his sores. But death came as the great equalizer, as it will to each one of us. And in the afterlife, there was a reversal. Lazarus found comfort, whereas the rich man suffered torment, agony, and regret. I don't think these gospel stories intend to portray the furniture of heaven or the temperature of hell. Rather, they remind us that our time here is short, our opportunities to serve the poor are limited and that our economic choices shape our deepest identities and our eternal destinies. By sharing generously and being rich in good deeds, says Paul, we lay up treasure for ourselves as a firm foundation for the coming age and take hold of the life that is truly life indeed. 1 Timothy 6, 18-19 We freely share what we have not out of guilt, ascetic renunciation, some communistic ideal that loathes private property, nor because the poor are virtuous. Paul is clear. God richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Rather, in tending to the poor, we care for our own souls and imitate The Character of God Himself. For books this week, in keeping with the theme of money, I review Michael Lewis, The Big Short Inside the Doomsday Machine. New York, W.W. Norton, 2010. 266 pages. In October of 2008, my 86 year old father in law opened his monthly financial statement and was shocked to see that in the last month, his Lehman Brothers stock had plummeted from $16,000 to $12. By that time, Lehman was not alone. Catastrophe had been brewing for a long time and the signs of the apocalypse were beginning to appear. In the third quarter of 2007, for example, Merrill Lynch reported that its potential exposure to certain subprime investments was $15 billion. Just one quarter later, they tripled that estimate to $46 billion. I still don't understand interest rate swaps, mezzanine collateralized debt obligations, or credit default swaps. But after reading Michael Lewis's bestseller about the meltdown of the financial system, I don't feel so bad about my ignorance. No ordinary human being, he writes, had ever even heard of these credit default swaps, or if the people behind them had their way, ever would. By design, they were arcane, opaque, illiquid, and thus conveniently difficult for anyone except the creators to price. Because of deliberate non-disclosure, accounting fraud, and hiding risk and complexity, Lewis writes, hardly anyone could understand a subprime mortgage-backed collateral debt obligation. Not the clueless ratings agencies Moody's and S&P, not the hapless SEC, not investors, not Ben Bernanke, and not, to take just one example, Bank of America's CEO, Ken Lewis. Credit default swaps fed upon the subprime mortgage boom, which made it possible for a Las Vegas stripper to own five investment properties, or for a strawberry picker with an income of $14,000 a year to buy a $700,000 house. Lewis describes these people as one broken refrigerator from default. The mortgages, many of which required no proof of employment, income, or money down, were in fact designed to fail, says Lewis, so that the borrowers were forced to refinance with an even riskier loan. These subprime mortgages with floating rates eventually comprised about 80% of all mortgages. In what's called an originate and sell strategy, the mortgages were then sold down the line bundled as putative investments, given high ratings by Moody's and S&P, and then ping-pong between institutional buyers and sellers who gambled on them. It wasn't exactly true that no one knew what was going on. The main focus of Lewis's book is on the very small number of people who did understand the idiocy and the gross dishonesty of Goldman Sachs, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, and their kin, and who, based upon their understanding, made a straightforward bet against the entire multi-trillion dollar subprime mortgage market, and, by extension, the global financial system. These colorful contrarians never lost sight of a basic truth, that someone would eventually have to pay when the stripper and the strawberry picker inevitably defaulted on their loans. For these clear-sighted people who swam against very strong currents, it was like buying cheap fire insurance on a house engulfed in flames. In the end, of course, we, the taxpayers, paid for those bad loans and bailed out Wall Street and their executives, who still earned tens of millions of dollars for their so-called work. My father-in-law never got his money back. The author is Michael Lewis. The title of the book, The Big Short, Inside the Doomsday Machine. For film this week, I will go to Iran. The title of the film, Iran, a Cinematographic Revolution, from the year 2007. This fascinating documentary begins on January 16, 1979, with hundreds of thousands of Iranian demonstrators shouting death to the shah as the megalomaniac dictator was exiled from power, never to return again. The film then backtracks to the turn of the century and shows how Iranian cinema both shaped and reflected the major cultural trends of the last hundred years political ideology, socioeconomic inequality, censorship, propaganda, gender roles, westernizing impulses, the eight-year war with Iraq that took a million lives, and especially the triumphal return after 15 years in exile of Ayatollah Khomeini, who replaced the secular modernizing monarchy of the Shah with a religious revolution and an Islamic Republic. Under Khomeini, cinemas were considered unholy places, like brothels. In the nine months after his rise to power, 125 theaters were closed or burned. The film draws upon long clips from dozens of Iranian films, interviews with directors and film critics, and archival film footage of major moments in Iranian history. The film in English narration in Farsi, with English subtitles. Iran, a Cinemographic Revolution. And in keeping with our care for the poor for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by James Russell Lowell, who lived from 1819 to 1891. It's part of a larger work called The Present Crisis. Careless seems the great avenger. History's pages but record one death grapple in the darkness, twixt old systems in the word. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. James Russell Lowell, The Present Crisis. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 26, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.